Today we sort of looked at, uh, I'll just try and stand to the side here. Um, we talked about the Feast of Trumpets and my journey as I was revisiting this whole lens and um, this place I was in. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't share this morning, but there was considerable pain in my life at the time that um, God was doing a bit of um, correction and reproof in my life. And uh, in that crushing place, um, there were certain things that um, that I could ask that I didn't maybe fully hadn't um, either got sorted out in my own brain um, or I would be sensitive enough to hear maybe perhaps what he was saying. And so a lot of what you hear when I'm sharing this stuff from you is a little bit of a testimony more than you know um, from things that I, you know, that I um, perhaps uh, didn't know or didn't get right, didn't care, that kind of a thing. So what, what I w- am sharing with you from a testimony perspective is these were the things that he started to reveal to me because I never really understood um, this perspective. And there is one more here on the end, and um, apparently um, Clay has confirmed uh, that Boy, you guys aren't going to like this. Um, We're going one more week in the series. (laughs) So um, we're going to save the millennial reign um, because it's a really beautiful thing, I think, to look together as a body. And we're going to finish the way I think he wants us to finish as opposed to next week, which, again, you know, it's a little bit bit serious and shoots some of the golden calves. But next week we're looking at something called the Great Delusion. And uh, and there's some tough stuff to look in there. But uh, again, like today, it's okay. We can go there. And um, but uh, anyway, so that was kind of cool. So I was really excited about that. So um, I kind of misled you this morning. We are actually going to make the last part of this series um, about the next stage of his plan. And it's really kind of cool because this is post wedding. <laughs> so is anybody interested what the groom's up to after the wedding? Um, I'm not saying I've got all the answers on that. That's going to be finally the stage where I share a lot more of where I really believe I've been led. Um, I believe I've been led to look at these matters uh, through the appointed times. I believe it's what he's established. It keeps it simple. It keeps it clear. And we don't have to uh, twist scripture to make things fit that we have questions about. Um, however... Um, when we look at these things, it becomes challenging because a lot of us, I know I had, um, I'd entertained a number of possibilities on this thing called the rapture. And this morning, uh, again, it wasn't about trying to tell you what to believe. Um, in fact, I'm not into that. It's not about, you know, you have to believe this, you can't do this, you can't eat that, all this kind of stuff. Um, you don't stand in front of me when this is all over anyway. Um, the whole point is was to share with you what I believe he truly did with myself and to give that to you and for you to take it away and to look at the word and to walk with one another and test these things and um, let him show you you know and for me it was an incredible time because I had a lot of understanding and knowledge of something we call the end times I particularly that was an area that I had a lot of knowledge in and so for somebody with more understanding in a certain area, um, can these, if someone's got a lot of understanding in an area and somebody comes along and challenges that understanding, is it easier or harder to sometimes shift from that position? 
and our pride gets in the way and um, what we think we know and sometimes we're defending because, you know, in my case, especially with a large mouth, you've ended up saying a lot of things to people and, and then all of a sudden it's like you're getting a smack. And what do you do with that? And I feel even more sorry for maybe even some people that, you know, with, um, you know, that the Lord's worked very well from, but uh, through and with in their ministries. But now you've got hundreds of books and DVDs and stuff out there. What do you do then? You know, it's quite an interesting position. You know, and I, I go, oh, well, if it was me, you know, I would just, you know, repent and tell everybody if the Lord, you know, you know, really? It's a little bit hard. So, you know, I'm just, this isn't about throwing people under the bus and it's not about judging this. and It's just, we're fallen. And no amount of brain power or what I think or whatever association I'm a part of or whatever ministry or movement doesn't make me subject to reproof and correction and ultimately discipleship. Is that fair? And so maybe sometimes putting people on pedestals becomes our downfall as a body. You know, if the person's behind the mic, they're important. Really? Is that really, I mean, do we really think that's how God views this? We have a job to do. You know, I, I, I have whatever I've been asked to serve. And that service isn't just, and for a lot of people it would be hard to believe, it's not just talking. Um, it can be other things. But at, at times, you know, in fact, there was a point at one time in my life where I almost promised to myself and I, obstinately before God, I will not stand behind a pulpit ever again. I was so hurt and disillusioned by the church. I won't do it. And I've had to eat a lot of humble pie um, over the year. And and uh, and I realized that that what he was doing was working with my heart first before you, you know, sit there and go, well, this is my testimony because if that doesn't get sorted out first then perhaps I'm standing in front of you in a wrong place and so as we go forward with this and we look at this and real um, just to remember that the position that we're going to get is is one of depending on the level of knowledge and understanding depending on what's sitting behind that possibly is a denial or a betrayal position which we see in Peter and Judas, and those accounts are in the gospel. One eventually led to repentance, and one eventually didn't. Um, But what was with both of them was, what was in them and what they believed to be true gave an adverse or adversary reaction to what God in the flesh was actually saying. So um, let's not judge people along the way, um, or ministries and things. Let's not be those kind of people. Let's be the kind of people that go, you know what? We're just going to keep looking. We're not going to be afraid to look because his blood actually paved the way for us to look, and we can do that, right? Okay. Um, right here. So I challenged, uh, this morning my challenge was was that the Lord was recorrecting me on something called the rapture and that the Feast of Trumpets actually was speaking all about it. Does anybody remember what the rapture uh, sorry, the Feast of Trumpets was pointing to it was the gathering or the coming of who? A groom. Now, that's hard for a male position, isn't it? Isn't it? This whole typology, it's kind of like I had to get my head around that one. 
I, I, women honestly tend to get this a lot easier and, and because the whole thing kind of works in with the groom thing, right? Men, they're kind of like, you know, so my groom's coming. How does that work? And so you imagine, I always would feel sorry for Clay and Greg and those that were, you know, and, and, and Simon and Kirk and the elders and things that have been going through this whole thing of this marriage covenant and just slowly trying to talk to it because you're standing up there talking about a groom. And that's a really weird position from a male perspective. But of course it's a typology, right? Of a greater thing, a greater marriage. And in fact, every marriage that's in the human, in the physical, what? And he's correcting. You remember when Yeshua actually was correcting him, he says, oh, you do err. And he's talking to the Pharisees, and they're going through the, the widowed woman that had passed down from husband to husband to husband. And they think they've got him, right? And he says, um, they literally say to him, well, who's she married to, smarty pants? This is God in the flesh. You know, I bet they would take a lot of things back. You know, hindsight would have been a wonderful thing. Remember, they don't believe that he's the Messiah. So this kind of questioning that's going on, all right, at the time. But they basically think they're catching him out. And what was his answer? You do err, not knowing Scripture. Wow. Now you think about this. These guys could have quoted you the book of Deuteronomy verbatim. Now, if I quoted you the book of Deuteronomy verbatim, would your reaction be, oh, he doesn't know Scripture? So how offensive can you be? You do err not knowing Scripture. That's pretty offensive. And so as he's correcting them, this thing's going on. Of course, they're just holding it in their heart, holding it in their heart, and then it just got all too much of the kicking of the tables. And now they're, you know, now he's going to get rid of the money changers in the house. And, you know, that's it. We've had enough. You're off. He knew exactly how they were going to react because of what was in their heart, right? So there was no thing going on. But we, we, we definitely weren't dealing with... Just because he came as a suffering servant, he didn't come as the suffering wet fish. <laughs> okay? And so we need to understand that, right? He wasn't just walking around, you know, beat me, beat me. He was literally challenging something that was going to eventually get him, you know, persecuted and put on the cross. So so anyway, um, as he's going through this, his answer is, you do err not knowing scripture, right? For you are not married nor given in marriage in heaven. See, they don't get it yet. Who are we being restored and married to? You see, if they don't understand this whole covenant position, which they didn't, that kind of thing is he's saying you're erring. You're not getting this. You think this is all about the now, the physical. But actually the real deal is next. Right? And so we're living this place that he's got in a nice sort of um, safe position while we work out um, understanding how much we love him, wanting to get to know him, walking together, and growing to the fullness of who he is. Um, And that's why he made it a team game. So ultimately, I can't be an island to myself. I literally need you. And... You need me, and we all need to walk and learn how this works together. So if you were the adversary, the enemy, would you be pretty happy with creating 30,000-plus denominations? Because it's starting to get all this stuff going on, and and everybody's getting divisive, and it's like, you know what? There's a lot of hills where people are dying on that our Lord never asked us to die on. 
And a lot of those doctrines are our speculations, our opinions, our conjectures. One of the things, like I said this morning, what, what was fascinating for me is that I could take a whole rafter of Scripture, including something as contentious as when the groom comes to pick up his bride. And guess what? When I learned what that was, it screamed rapture. And I'm just going, unbelievable. Why was that never taught to me? Why have I been taught every other position, but I wasn't given at least that as a choice? Is that fair? How many were even given that as a choice before this morning? You should at least get a chance to weigh it up. Right? And then we talked about the Day of Atonement. We hear about the awesome, the Day of the Lord, you know. And and then you've got all these doctrines around this. What is the Day of the Lord? And we read it and all this kind of a thing. And it's like I started to understand that these days of awe and this repentance started to line up with something that we see being earlier foreshadowed with actually the ten plagues of Egypt. And actually, they started to line up. There's some interesting things going on with those. And those ten plagues of Egypt started to line up with the seven bull judgments that were recorded in the book of Revelation, which actually were referring to his wrath. And I'm going, this is interesting. And then I found out that there's this whole ten days of awe before the Day of Atonement. And when I started to understand what that was, there are people in a massive place of repentance. For ten days, God has asked us to be in a place of a dress rehearsal where we are turned to him with absolute repentance in our heart. You imagine that every year. We're going to think about our lives before him. What we haven't got right before him with each other. You imagine every year this is coming and this is a solemn assembly, a holy convocation. A dress rehearsal for something, you know, and it starts to remind us that the dress rehearsal related to the coming of a high priest. The Day of Atonement, as it's celebrated in Judaism and how it was celebrated in the temple, was the high priest once a year only was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Well, of course, our high priest now is what? Yeah, it's him. So they've got an interesting thing that they're practicing And at the coming, his second coming, if you read the scriptures, they're literally right going to gaze upon him. And they are going to mourn as if for an only child. And his actual appearing will be the reality of what? Their hearts will finally, the high priest will, will get in there. And of course, we're now the temple. So this has all got a physical play out. And then we got this five day of silence. This is an interesting one because there's there's so little on it and there's so little understanding as to why there's this mystery five days. Because actually in the Passover week, right through to you get the 50, the counting of the Omar, which we're in, which finishes on the day of Pentecost or Shavuot. And there's no break from the start of Passover right through to Shavuot or Pentecost. Yet in this one, there's this five days of silence. And I always, this is just me, by the way, total conjecture. I always get this thing in my head. You know, you ever heard the judge in a courtroom and he smacks the hammer and what does he hear? Silence in the court. <laughs> and I'm like, this is interesting because the, the scripture does talk about a sheep and goat's judgment and things. So 
you know, and all the experts, they don't know where to put it, when it happens, why it happens, blah, 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 blah. But they all got their theories. But all of a sudden, I never had an answer for the sheep and goats judgment. Yet this one, understanding this, all of a sudden gave at least a scriptural place, not a, just a conjectural one. So I found that interesting. And then, of course, when I learned the Feast of Tabernacles, that was just wonderful. Do you know what? This is one of the feasts commanded to come in um, to uh, um, with the bodies commanded to come together and to celebrate. Um, and in fact, I don't know if anybody knows this. I will touch on one thing, give you a glimpse. When you come together in this, they, you make the um, uh, the feast of Sukkot or tabernacles. You're to leave a part of the roof structure open. And so when you lie there at night, guess what you're looking at? Yeah. And what's fascinating about this is this is one, and I'm just going to give you a glimpse of this. This is one where we're seeing a, a marriage wedding feast um, occurring. So the marriage of the lamb and the wedding feast, you know, the parable of the wedding feast and the ten virgins. and You start to get this whole picture of what's going on. But this is where it started to really reach into the very depths of my spirit when I started to receive this. I discovered that in the Tanakh of the Old Testament, that do you know that this is one of the feasts or appointed times that not only is commanded during the millennial reign, and we will look at those scriptures, but if you don't participate in this, your nation and your people will not receive rain during this time. And rain is considered a blessing. Now, this is fascinating. You mean you've got the option not to still? And he's ruling and reigning on earth? Get your head around that one. So there's still free will. There's still a fallen state in this picture, everything else. So there's, there's an option to still not do this. Here's the thing that's interesting. Three of these appointed times are all commanded that we gather together at these. Okay, so Passover, Shavuot, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now, what's fascinating about this, why not penalties for the other two? The other two really relate to him. But Tabernacles includes something else. Guess who it includes? His bride. Do you know what's interesting? And I believe this with all my heart, and I'm going to share it with you now. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. You can disgrace and dishonor my appointed times. But this is my bride. And if you disgrace and dishonor her, now you've got a problem. If this is the kind of groom that we have, you're in good hands. And that, Nate... So are these things worth looking at and understanding? Because they're not going away, even in the next stage. And in fact, I think if we're just willing to go, okay, let's have a look at these things, you're going to find it just gets deeper and more beautiful and more of an understanding. And it's exciting. Um, okay, well, I'm going to pretty much shut down there. So we end with the last great day, and that's at the last day and comes out of Tabernacles. And then we go into this incredible period. And now after today, we're going to spend a whole... Sunday morning, just looking at something that very rarely has anybody ever been with the body where you actually have looked at the millennial reign. Doesn't that fascinate you? This is a part of our groom's plans. How'd that happen? Like, why are, why are we looking at these things? 
And I was, by the way, when I say ask you these questions, I was asking me this. I was going through this, right? Um, now, this is absolutely one of my most favorite subjects. Anybody who walks with me um, closer in my own discipleship or accountable group, they know I love this one. Because I'm just so excited about it. I'm just like, man, this is a mind blower. It really is. And there's no way that I know everything you can know about this because of the way it's structured and set up. But the clues that were given scripturally, man, this is neat. I'm excited. Especially if you're coming into this as um, as the bride. So I'm going to just shut it down there as, as a summary, but hopefully that just gives you um, a sense. And there are some questions that came regarding this this morning and some good ones that come in. Thank you very much. So we'll just get into those and um, hopefully we can give some answers. Okay, so we're going we're to start with the ones that have been sent in and then um, we want to make sure that we actually get clarity on those. So if we ask uh, the question... Uh, who sent that one in? I mean, they're not really personal questions, not from my reading. So we want to make sure that you've got clarity from the answer or if we need to dig a bit deeper with it. So please just follow with that. After that, we're going to open it to the floor to bring some questions. And I just want to repeat, if we could please keep them on topic. I'm sure there's lots of things you'd like to talk about, but we really want to give tonight over to speaking to this particular series. Is that cool? All right. And um, be gentle. Just be prepared. <laughs> That's right. Um, one thing, too, I've got to make an apology because I I'd, um, put the wrong word up on the slide this morning. And I kept saying eminence instead of imminence. Okay, so the doctrine of imminence. Um, unfortunately, though, I kept seeing it. I just couldn't stop myself. And um, and so uh, my apologies. So the doctrine was the doctrine of imminence. And um, it's not actually in Scripture. Okay. Um, I understand why people went there and why they wanted it to be there. But the fact of the matter is it's just not there. It's not in Scripture. So um, what is in Scripture is that our life is in his hands. That is actually in Scripture. So, um, But that doctrine was used to propagate that at any time uh, this thing called the rapture could happen. And, um, yeah. So, anyway, uh, my apologies. It's uh, imminence, not imminence. Um, yeah. All right, so we've got a few questions, so we're gonna, I'm going to read them out, and um, Curtis will give a 100% technically correct answer to them all. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right, so, but if, if you are here and you ask these questions, if it hasn't been asked, uh, asked correctly by me, then you know, we'll give you the opportunity to um, straighten me out. Okay, so here's a question. Six days to create heavens and the earth. Three and a half years of, doesn't say, but I'm picking tribulation. And a thousand years of, which I'm picking as millennial reign. Are these all the same types of measure? Okay, that's a good question. Um, so we look at the six days of creation. And we, you know, a day equals a thousand years, thousand years, but a day, so did he take six thousand years, that kind of a thing? I, I'm not sure if that's coming from that position. Um, this is where I've been led on it. Um, the, the actual word used um, uh, in the Hebrew and in the English is day. It's actually a day. And 
to try and make this anything else becomes a possible conjecture and understanding that we can raise. But what we do know is that the same word used for day is day. Okay, so there's a simple reality occurring there. So if we take that on face value, what does that mean for us? And one of the things that he's led me to look at that in this situation is that he's speaking the creation into being at this time. And one of the things that we get perhaps confused of is we kind of think in our human model, well, how do you make the heavens and the, you know that kind of thing? How do you bring light into it? And, and the way I try and give an analogy is that if, if there was a dark ball, let's say, and inside that dark ball is light, and there might be a poor little ant in there or something. He doesn't know what's going on. Okay. <laughs> but if you just humor me for a second. You can just imagine that. Now, I have all, I'm outside the time domain. I have all the available resource that I need that can all be waiting in the wings. If I cut a hole in that sphere and shine the flashlight and say, let there be light, to the ant, what are they experiencing? Light. Do they have any idea how that light's occurring, where it's come from, the, 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 the magnificence of the God Curtis who can do such a thing? Do you, do you see the ant's perspective is there's light. How do I say anything else to that ant? Do I now explain all about the flashlight, where I got that from, the batteries around it, what the sphere is? Do you, what's the capacity of the ant? It can understand the light. It can understand light. Okay, so sometimes we got to remember when we're looking at this, we're putting God in time again, aren't we? And he's trying to make a reference that he's not in time. So all of these things that are being spoken into being are entering a zone, a space that he's creating. But his capacity and ability to do such a thing and to speak these things into being... I think gets beyond us so the way that you relate it is in a certain term. Does that make sense? So we don't, we may not know and understand what's happening behind the scenes, but we do know that it's still truth. Let there be light. Light occurred, right? And so we don't have to keep sticking God into our little fallen time domain. Let's just let him be God outside that and let him, let, uh, we're the recipients of it. How's that? Um, so when we look at things like, um, Three and a half years, a uh, thousand year millennial reign, we start to um, to look at time periods and go, okay, so what are the contexts of these? So I look at six days as six actual days. I, I, that's the way I view it. But I'm not saying what's happening behind the scenes doesn't have some serious explanation. Um, so three and a half years, three and a half years. Um, and a thousand years is a thousand years. Um, this, this is neat though. Um, are these all the same types of measures? So, I would say if you look at it literally, to me, yes, they are. Um, I just don't try and explain what's going on behind the scenes because I'm the ant. Um, so anyway, so I, I'm not sure if that answers it, but that's the um, that's the best that I've got. If you're here and you ask the question, is that anything else you'd like to add? I might just start, uh, ask this question because it, it's time related. Actually, I'm going I'm to throw something on me. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> have, have I shared my, my circles of certainty with you? <laughs> you heard me use that, that phrase before? How I've, I've got these concentric circles radiating out from the central little circle that has the, the, uh, the doctrines that I hold most dear, things that my whole world is built around these, 
There is no doubt in my central circle that there is a God and he loves me and that his son, Jesus, who is God, died for me and because of him uh, I have an eternity of glory to look forward to. There's a few things central to me in that. And then the next circle out has things that I believe strongly but not to the same degree. Uh, I believe that I'm awesome. Um, <laughs> but as you, as you actually know, I am awesome as in a, as in a, as in a further circle out. Uh, so the, the further circles you get out, the less certainty I have, but there's still things that I, I believe or I'm leaning towards. So uh, I, I used to believe very strongly in a, in a six-day creation. I came from churches which took uh, uh, scriptures very literally, uh, and I took Genesis 1 as a science textbook uh, and, and would read it, interpret it in such a way. So it was uh, six-day creation was very close to the middle, if not in the very middle of, uh, of my belief system. Uh, each year it seems to push out a little bit further, and start, see, my understanding of the word yom, the word for day, is that it's actually used in a number of different ways and not just for a 24-hour time period. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, the word yom is translated as time, as in, as time passed, this thing happened. So it wasn't speaking about a 24-hour day, but it was the same word yom. Uh, is that to say that I, that, uh, that means that Genesis 1 isn't um, a six-day affair? I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that there, um, there are different um, uses for yom. And when I read Genesis 1, um, I see that there is a particular day uh, which uh, where we are given lights in the sky to distinguish uh, day from night. And so I definitely believe quite strongly that from the creation of the sun and the moon, that from there there are definitely 24-hour periods of time. That doesn't mean that the first few days aren't the same, but I think that that makes it very clear that we are given a specific point where the where seasons, where months, where years and where days are definitely uh, locked in. That allows for me the possibility that the earth is um, older than 6,000 years. Uh, coming from a science background, there are some things I've struggled to reconcile from, uh, from uh, uh, paleontology and the, um, archaeology and the study of, of the earth that the, yeah, there's a bit of fudging of science to, to make, um, in my opinion, to make the earth 6,000 years, but I uh, have dear brothers and sisters who categorically uh, disagree with me on that. Uh, but yeah, I, I tend to believe that uh, the Lord might have taken longer to create the earth uh, but from the creation of probably actually the plants, because they actually need um, they need to get some cycles of uh, some sun. of sun and um, and rest. From that point, definitely 24 hours. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's as cut and dry as a lot of Christians make it. But I think my point is is that there is room uh, to uh, to hold things in tension and for believers to not agree 100% on some doctrines, and I still be able to have unity. On what's really important. Uh, so that might make me a heretic now. I hope you can love me uh, in that. And what I did not say is that I believe in evolution. Let's make that clear. Because <laughs> some people are putting that down. Yeah, evolutionist Clay. Okay, so uh, yeah, that would that would be what I'd add to that. Oh, that's cool, Clay. And and it's not. Does everyone agree? This it's it's a great example. Um, it is it a, a is it a hill worth dying on? When can we really stand here and explain what 
what was really happening behind the scenes. You know, and so, so we, we just got to be honest to a certain point, you know, and that's, and be as, as much as we can, you know, to sort of say, okay, let's keep looking, let's keep searching together. And, and we remember that whatever we're looking at physically now, we're seeing from a fallen state. It wasn't created fallen state. Um, so this question was, how do you get 1,000 260 days from the words time, times, and a half. Well, the first thing you do is you don't use the King James Version when you're speaking. Um, what you're seeing is a translation um, that basically times equals a year. So you're seeing time, times is two, so one plus two, and then half a times. And this is Hebrew calendar years, 360-day cycle. So it's just that simple. So if I hadn't used the King James, the it would have actually said it, if that makes sense. But that's, yeah, that's what's happening. So time is just equaling uh, a year. And that was the translation. So we understand the time frame that it's talking about. But, yeah, so. Sorry, just hold a second. Yeah. Um, I don't really have an opinion on it. Just, I just didn't get it. Um, so if time is a year in this con- in this, in this context, context yeah. um, time times and a half is three and a half years, it, it sounded like this morning you said you went from a point and went, we can go uh, 1,260, whatever it was the days you counted out were. 1,260. 1,200, it was 1,260. Yeah. So how does three and a half years equate to 1,260? That's three and a half Hebrew calendar years. So that's... 360 days to a year. Right, See, so we, you're we're, putting we're, a, on, we're on a Gregorian calendar, which is 365 days solar. Okay, yeah. so time, times and a half, then you're going that... One year. One year, and you're giving a day... It's a Hebrew a year. year. So every day now equates to a year as well? No, no, the times yeah. is a year, Yeah. but a year, scripturally, is 360 days. Yeah. So we're 2,000 years on in a Gregorian calendar, and to us a year is what? 365 days. So we're just, the context of it is time equals year. Well, what is a year? 360 days. Okay, two years. Right, and then you're just adding them up. That's all it is. And it it equals 1,260 days. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Cool. Um, Right at the end of one of your sermons, you said that the watchman looks out for the groom, and when he spots the bride, when he spots him, the bride starts freaking out. She's supposed to be ready. How does freaking out translate to how that might look in the natural on earth, so to speak? <laughs> now, if, if you're here and you ask that question, it's great. Um, if you understand it, that's great, because I actually didn't. I think I do. I can give a little bit of a hand here. Um, I think we're living it. Um, if What would happen, they were, you're supposed to keep yourself ready. So you would have your wedding garments ready and they're all there and you're sort of in a state of prepared. So all of a sudden you hear the shofar. What would you do? You'd be jumping out of bed, rushing around, grabbing what? You're grabbing this and grabbing that. Now she's not freaking out in the sense of, you know, I'm terrified. It's an excited 
sort of like the groom's coming, the groom's coming. Do you see what the, the what I was trying to make was if we only play on the fear model and not the love and excitement that comes with it, she's actually wanting to prepare. She's been waiting for this. Ah, it's going off. It's like game on. So her freaking out isn't freaking out as in scared freaking out. It's excited. The groom's coming. You know, I've been preparing. She's ready. The other sort of freaking out would be, I don't, I haven't even washed the, the dress or it's still half made or something. That would be sobering. Parable of the Ten Virgins appears that there's about a 50-50 reality going on if we just look at it and it's basic sort of numbers. But all of them were sleeping, all were slumbering. Five wake up with the oil. Five are prepared and they're able to get to meet the groom. Five went. So, um, my, I'm just trying to encourage. There's two forms of freaking out and I'm hoping that we're going to be a body that freaks out the right way. How's that? Like, great. The, you know, the, the dress is ready. We're going. And that's why I think what's happening here is what I would call preparation. Bride preparation. At least we're, at least we're willing to look at this wedding dress thing. <laughs> and, um, and sort of try and figure it out together. So. Does, does that answer the question? Hi. Um, well, uh, kind of. It's all very like metaphorical the way you're speaking and stuff. I guess being prepared, like uh, I guess no one will ever know how prepared they need to be to a certain point, you know, because oh, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. All we can do, I guess, is just try our hardest. <laughs> but I don't know. It uh, just leaves you kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of thinking, how do I get prepared enough? Like, is my dress ready? What does that mean? Wow, that's great. <laughs> that's great. What are the practical steps? Um, that's where I think we have to look at his pattern, right? So a great, great pushback here because let's get deeper into this. What did he pattern while he was here? He patterned something with his disciples for a year, 70 weeks actually. What did he pattern? Discipleship, washing in the word. Right? Walking with one another, prayer, one-on-one with the Father, not just all together. You know, the, a, a life dedicated to preparation. So he didn't just make it metaphorical. He actually, in fact, I can't think of anything God did, m- spent more time on that I know of recorded in Scripture in human terms than actually the process of discipleship. So that's a pretty big weighting and importance. I'm going to live and demonstrate this for 70 weeks. For your benefit. So the answer to your question, I believe, is what he patterned in discipleship. And that's the thing that gives the preparation. So as we enter into discipleship, as we enter into washing in his word, we have prayer, we do this as a body. The act of doing it his way is preparation. Um, the appointed times, these are my appointed times. Would you please know them, celebrate them, remember them? Do you see all of this? is uh, preparation. I hope that helps. But I, I yeah, cool. I think yeah. we, we, need to, uh, we need to adopt a, a different approach than we certainly have to, uh, to our weddings if, if you've been married. I certainly remember when I was uh, preparing myself for Leslie, I, uh, what, I polished my shoes a bit, uh, got a haircut, I, uh, I had a shave, which if you know me is a big deal. Um, so yeah, I, you know, had my, I, my suit was, uh, was pressed wore an iron shirt, which is also a big deal. Um, and I had a look and thought, yep, 
Yeah, that'll do. That'll do. That's what she's getting. And um, it kind of reached a point where it's like, yeah, that, that, that's about as much as I need to do or I can be bothered doing. And um, and sure enough, she went through with it. So um, I guess it, I guess it was enough. Um, and part of our Kiwi culture is, you know, she'll be right. That'll that'll do. She'll be right. Uh, and we'll, we'll just chance her arm and, and see if we pull it off. Whereas that is not that is not the, the the kingdom mindset, and that is not the way we can approach this concept of of the of the marriage between uh, Jesus and his and his his bride. So there there isn't a good enough. There isn't a point where we've arrived. Uh, certainly not this side of, of eternity and glory. So it's not so much of trying to reach a point where that's enough, but it's more our, our life on earth is this beautiful journey of becoming more like him. And that's what this preparation is. We're, we're going to reflect his glory. We're going to reflect his nature. And that's the process of sanctification. And the way that happens is exactly what you just described. Discipleship, washed in his word, walking together, contending for truth. It's those things. But I know now that I'm, I'm never going to be worthy of him uh, except for the fact that he chooses to make me worthy in his blood. And the joy that I have before me is running into him and becoming more like him. And I can never say that's enough, but he can. And thankfully he loves me just as I am now, but he also loves me to continue to sanctify me into something better than I am right now. So that's probably what I'd add to that. That's good. Does everybody understand this is not a salvation issue we're talking about? This is a sanctification issue. So we're not putting his blood on the stand just because I maybe only want to shave myself at the last moment or something. We, we, we're just trying to encourage each other to walk. I, what I do know is this. Paul, at the end of his life, now through the epistles, 13 we believe that he wrote directly, um, he was agonizing about the same thing. You know, you know, and he's working this through. But at the end, he actually said, I now go on to receive my crown. He actually knew somehow just before his death, he'd actually had prepared his wedding garment. Now, he knew. Now, how he knows, because if somebody asked me, Curtis, are you, you know, that's it. He's going to show up right now. I'd be like, I, I don't think I'm done yet. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm, I can speak for me. And But the encouragement I have is somehow Paul got there in the end. And I think so did the other disciples. In fact, they didn't even love their own lives even under death by the time it was done. So there's an encouragement that we see in Scripture that um, although it's a wonderment and it's a process, um, he's not holding a shotgun wedding. He literally wants a bride who wants to be there. And and so she'll prepare herself, and he's demonstrated how to do it, and we live it. And so I think we can get to a place where um, we know, because I think Scripture records it as such. But when we get there, how we get there, and what that journey involves, that's each of our individual lives with him. You know, and um, some of us are more donkeys than others, like I've said before, and some of us have a little bit. We have journeys that include some interesting stuff. Uh, to get us to maybe uh, help us along, and uh, I know I've I've had a bit of help. Uh, so, um, I think too that as you know, the Lord tends to work through the stuff of life to allow His character nature to develop within us. And how do we know when some of that happens? 
Um, it's just the stuff of life. How do I react? How am I responding? Does it look like Christ? Does it look like his word? Or does it look more like, you know, like, oh, that didn't look too much like Jesus. <laughs> so maybe some more work. And that's just surrendering the heart. As the spring feasts were fulfilled in sequence within a 60-day period, can we expect the fall feasts to fall within a two-week period and in sequence? Wow, what a great question. I don't know who answered that, but that's somebody who's going, am I, am I getting this right? Um, this is a big one. This is a big one. We are told to honor it exactly that way. To remember it, to celebrate it, to make a dress rehearsal this way. Exactly the way that is, in sequence, as it is every year. Then he comes and fulfills the first four. And guess what? They didn't happen at various bits through a seven-year period, did they? Bang, 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 in sequence, same year, to the day, to the hour. I'd suggest the pattern that we're told how to celebrate them, the pattern that we've seen him demonstrate in the flesh on the earth, would suggest to me what we're heading for is exactly that. And there is nothing in Scripture that could say otherwise. And as much as our doctrines will try and twist these around because I've got to fit my seven years in somewhere, doesn't account for what was actually instructed or uh, for us to, to know and to look and to honor. And it actually will never change what he and how he literally fulfilled it. So that's quite sobering, isn't it? You mean that this is going to go bang, 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 bang? Yes. And that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. And that caught a few of them off at that time as well. But we have the luxury of hindsight. So I've got two pretty strong things. i got his word, and I've got the actual account of the fulfillment of the first four. I tell you which one I'm going to go with as opposed to man's doctrine. I'm going to go with the word, and I'm going to go with the record of what he did. If you if you want to go with another perspective, that's fine. I'm not here to argue through. I just I just don't want to invent stuff anymore or entertain it. I don't have to. So why would I? That's all. I don't have to make it be over some period of time. So I'm not going to. Does that help the question? Um, yeah, I was just through what you've taught and, and about the first one, it's just occurred to me that this morning that possibly the uh, the four feasts are going to happen the same way. Yeah. yeah. Does everybody following that question and the answer? No? No. Okay. Um, yeah, it's funny because you kind of look at this and you go, and sometimes you're like, I should be getting this, shouldn't I? You know, and then you don't want to say anything because no one wants to look. So, but you know what? I'm eight years into this and I'm still looking at some of this stuff and it's blowing my mind. And every time he starts to bring something deep or bring something more to light, I'm going, how did I not see it? So 
you know, I'm here skipping a stone over the surface of this subject, and we're trying to do our best and walk this together and just try and encourage you to look deeper and look into these things. And I'm certainly not going to be the one to stand here and say, oh, well, you should get it. You know, just everything's sorted, right? So, um, so keep asking the questions. But uh, is the thingy, the chart, can I throw, get that back up? If it's possible. Um, well, that's happening. So the Passover was prepared. He comes riding into town, right? The triumphal entry. He's announced we've got this preparation of the lamb going on. All of a sudden, Gethsemane starts. We're starting to see literally the fulfillment of Passover. At 3 o'clock, he's dying on the cross. This is January. The majority of the lambs are actually being slaughtered at the temple. He's literally fulfilling it. The heavens are marking this. We've got this whole thing going on. It all occurred, the fulfillment of the first four appointed times, all occurred right through this week of unleavened bread, right through to this counting of the Omar, 50 days to Shavuot or Pentecost. It all occurred in one sequence within the same year. Do we understand that? Right? And he fulfilled it literally. The question is, wait a minute, if there's four to come, are they going to be filled sequentially in the same year? And you see, so it asks the question, if that's the case, then I better understand what they are. Because if he's told us to celebrate them sequentially within the same year, every year, and he's given us a pattern that he fulfills them that way, why then wouldn't the final four be in the same year happening? Does that make sense? Yeah. And But there's doctrine out there that's got to fit their other time frames into it. So what they say now, because they're starting to click onto this. They're going, okay, maybe there's something to these appointed times. Well, we'll make the rapture happens at the beginning of the tribulation. And then seven years later, he does, he fulfills Day of Atonement and Tabernacles. Okay, I got it. Do you see what you've just done? For the sake of my doctrine, I've now slotted in a seven-year period into something that actually does is not supportable in Scripture. And it's not supportable in how he actually fulfilled it. So do you see the danger of my doctrine? I'm trying to make something fit the seven-year period, but I know the appointed times are becoming real. I can't accept that they're all going to happen in sequence the same year, so therefore I'm going to bust them up. And we do this for the sake of our tradition or our belief, and these are the things that are warned about. And by the way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we're doing that 2,000 years ago, and we're doing it again, no surprise. Does that make a bit more sense? The first four took place over 60 days. Yeah? Mm. And so the second four take place over 14 days. Correct. Yeah. Well, actually, if you want to include a thousand-year millennial reign, a lot longer than that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, good call. Yeah, it's September. Uh, yep. Yeah. And... End of September. Uh, trumpets this year. Gee, I'm not quite sure of the exact date off the top of my head, um, but we can sort that out. Um, but one of the things a number of people came up and and they were sort of going, you know, maybe doing a camp overnight, 
tabernacles and tents and actually talking about our future wedding would be something that you'd want to do. A number of people came to me um, and raised that. And so um, I'm not sure how Clay feels about it and how the leadership and the eldership team and whatnot. But I know certainly um, I would be full of joy to do that with you as a body, to, to actually get together in tents for a night and get some campfires going and talk about the coming king. I'm a big camper, yeah. We're big into camping. Let's cool, see. cool. Um, is anybody yeah. else interested in doing something like that together? Yeah, we're not we could talk about times and days and all this far-off stuff, but a wedding is about a marriage, and a marriage is about love. You know, if I want to get someone to marry me, I need to love them, and I need to know that they love me. And out of that love, things work. You don't do it because you have to. You don't do it because there's a day coming up or a time coming up. You do it because you love. He said that I'm coming for those who keep my commandment, love one another. I give you the love that you love one another, that you take care and look after one another. And if we're in that place as a church, we'll be at the wedding. You know, the... The wedding feast is already set. That's Some right. of his yep. bride is already there. We totally agree. The motivation for all of this is so is love. Yeah, well, we're not saying We need to focus different. on the love so that everyone gets into the wedding. I'm not sure what the question is, but I think I know where you're going with it. Um, the question uh, is, let's talk about love. Okay, I can speak to that. Um, obviously, you've heard me and, and Greg and others preach a lot. I've been told that um, by someone, I'm sick and tired of hearing messages about love. That's a serious thing that was spoken to us. Love is one of the things that we, it's probably the thing we speak to more than anything else. I've had another brother tell me that uh, we're, we're balanced too much on love and we don't emphasize the holiness of the Lord and other attributes. Uh, I'm not I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I, I certainly agree with you. It is all about love, and I believe that what uh, the Lord has emphasized most in Scripture is love. What underpins this is love. What took Jesus to the cross is love. Uh, the reason there is a marriage is because of his love for us, and our preparation is driven by our love for him. I totally agree with you, but I, I, I wouldn't say that love is not something that we emphasize here. I'm not sure how everyone else feels, but I... Knowing, knowing certainly what, what I preach and what Greg's been preaching, love is central to what we've been bringing. Uh, and we're not about to drop that message. Yeah. Okay, um, and just to back up uh, Clay on that, because I think it's a good thing to raise and to discuss. Um, yeah, is there a form of legalism that goes into this kind of thing? Yes. You know, I'm not sure if you were here this morning or not, but I was actually explaining, absolutely, there's the good and bad and ugly in every camp. But the, the the real issue is is does love come without action? And you can do one of two things. You can say, okay, well, if you don't do this, then you're going to get this. Is that love? Well, it's a forced position. No. Now, obedience can overcome the punishment, perhaps, but obedience can be done without love. And so I've heard people preach, well, he's looking for obedience to be okay. Obedience to what and why? And all of a sudden it's like, I'm not sure. Then we go on the other extreme. Oh, it's all about love. Okay, what does that look like? You see, 
the question here was, well, okay, you're talking about this preparation, you're talking about this love, but what does it look like? You see, an outcome, we often chase the outcome or we make the statement. But if I went around in this room and we said, okay, well, give me your definition of love. How many definitions am I going to have in this room alone? You see, whose definition of love do we need? Do you need Curtis Reeds? Do you need the gentleman speaking down the back? Do you need somebody? Who, 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 which one do you want? His. And so what we're doing is we're, we're looking and walking together to find out how he defines love, not how I do. And so what he's saying is it starts to look like this. For instance, I can say all I want. Let's say, to, who's married here? You have a spouse. You can sit there all you want and say, well, look, you know, let's say uh, there's nothing done around the house. It's a mess. Okay? And, and you're sitting there and you've got guests coming over. You've got whatever's going on. And you know that this is something that's actually a big deal. You just say, oh, well, you, you know I love you, dear. Okay. That's not in question. Is it? Is the question of the love for the spouse in, in doubt there? But doesn't action start to denote? Like, for instance, people ask me, well, why would you celebrate these? Well, for one, because I love him. It's an outcome. Can I chase all this stuff and it not be a work in the heart? Yes. But if I get the work in the heart, guess what I'm now starting to desire to do? We just talked about um, trumpets together. Was that going, you better come to trumpets this year? Or else. You better stop doing this. You better, you know, is, is that what's going on here? When I asked you who would like to do it, was there something in your spirit that was going, actually, I want to be with the body. I'm starting to desire this. Now, if you're God, do you want that done out of obedience or desire if this is a marriage based on love? Do you see where we're headed? So I appreciate the statement because if we don't have the conversation, we can get caught going down different roads. So thank you for raising it. Absolutely. Yeah, these are outcomes that we do. But he gives them for a reason for us to understand. Why? Because we need help. There's a reason why these are recorded in Scripture. And it's for us. And the wonderful thing is, we say we love him. I love you, Lord. He says, great. Now show it. So love for God this way is expressed this way. And the best way to do that is in community. Where would the day of the Lord or the days of wrath fit in the perspective of the full feasts or are they outside this period? Again, I'm not, we kind of answered it, but we'll just go over it again. The We're dealing with the, uh, the days of wrath. Right here. In the, in the dress rehearsal, we're to celebrate or to honor something called the ten days of awe. So it's coming right into here. 
And so that is teaching us an understanding because it finishes with the Day of Atonement, the High Priest entering into the Holy of Holies, or the Day of the Lord. So, and the reason why he has this recorded, and in fact, and, you know, wants us to celebrate it, is because he wants us to know. He wouldn't have this for us to look at if we weren't, if he didn't want us to know. It's a love letter to us. Why is he recording these things? Oh, no, I don't want to know about that. Well, again, if spouse can write to you, they can give you everything they've got. Look, I'm coming at such and such date. This is what I'm looking forward to, dear. You know, honey, whatever. You know, all these kinds of things. And the other spouse has, a, has an option to do what? No, well, not interested. You're going to love me my way. Or the spouse is learning to love the other and to learn to love and desire what they desire. Does, does that make sense? But I, I know at least in my life I had this attitude. You will love me my way, God. Because this is all about love. And this is how I define it. And I was not interested with how you define it. And I was not interested in what you desire and take pleasure in. It was all about who? Me. And guess who's having to die here? Me. Now that's me. I'm not putting that on you, okay? In the sense of that, you know, well, you guys all go check yourselves out. I have no right to sit here and judge anybody in that sense. What I can tell you, again, is my testimony. When God was breaking through into my spirit and breaking me down and crushing me, the realization of looking in the mirror was very, very real. Okay? And I realized that my, my whole view and image of my Savior had a centricity to it called Curtis Reed. Can you hear that? I wonder what my image of God looked like. It was starting to look a lot like me. Um, one more here, which is, I guess, alluding to the things you talked about, the things that we've created to, to worship. What about wedding rings? Are they not just as pagan as Christmas? Yes. They're expensive too. <laughs> Next. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, great question. And yeah, it's, it's accurate. Uh, wedding rings are completely pagan. They were Roman. It was the, the, the finger ring, uh, wedding ring of betrothal. That was a, that was a Roman practice. It was not a church program. Um, a church uh, celebration at all. Um, there is an exa- two examples I found in Scripture on uh, on rings and marriage, but they weren't finger rings. They were nose rings. So if you want to you want to find a biblical practice here, ladies, it's nose rings, probably big ones. Uh, check it out, Genesis 24 uh, with Rebecca. It's a big fat nose ring she's given. Um, Notice of betrothal. And you also see in Ezekiel 16, and this is the Lord, when the Lord symbolically is preparing a bride for himself of Jerusalem, he adorns his bride with a big fat nose ring. <laughs> so I'll just take, that, just take that away for your meditation. 
And um, if anyone gives you grief for getting a nose ring, just take them to the Word. Does, from scripture. Does, does anybody know why this is? I'll just give you an idea. It's so the groom can go here. You're coming with yeah. me. <laughs> I'll never know part of what he just said. But um, here's, here's the things. I mean, we can. I was one who was quick. <laughs> I was one who was quick to point out the pagan and everything, and I was one of the loudest on, on how pagan Christmas is. You know what? The, the, the practices we have on the 25th of December, we have appropriated a pagan festival, and we have. And there's a lot of stuff in there, actually, I don't even do with my family because I think it's too much. But here's the thing. Uh, back in the day, some Christians decided we're going we're gonna to Christianize a pagan festival, and we get a carryover of that. Let me give you another pagan symbol that we've adopted. Yeah, that one. What's the greatest symbol of Christianity? Cross. You think, you think that's a Hebrew thing? That is a pagan symbol. Goes back to Egypt. The Romans loved it. In fact, it was their symbol of, uh, that's the crucifixion. That was what they did to traitors. The symbol of the cross, the crucifixion, was an offense to the Hebrews. An offence to the Jews that they couldn't get over. And it wasn't a symbol that the early church adopted for themselves. They were they used a fish to symbolise themselves and, and for passing messages. It was later on that the cross was adopted. Does that mean that we're pagans because we use the cross in our worship and wear them around our necks? No, it's not. Because the symbol means something to us. It means life. It means power over death. It means Jesus and what he did for us. It means love. So we took something that was pagan and the Lord himself redeemed it. When he hung on the cross, he redeemed that symbol. So when I look at my wedding ring, does it have pagan origins in pagan Rome? Yes, it does. Does it mean anything like that to me when I look at it? No. When I look at my wedding ring, I think of the I think of the love that my wife has for me. I think about the promises, the covenant that I made to her. There's nothing pagan in that. I add to this what it means to me. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to burn in hell because of my wedding ring, but somehow I don't think so. Can if, I, we, if we can redeem, if the Lord can redeem the cross, we can do something with the ring as well. That's my ten cents. Could, I'll put a um, the um, where I've been led to look at this, and, and there's something interesting. In the temple that he actually oversees and builds uh, in the millennial reign, um, there's something that's actually cons- very conspicuous by its absence, um, which is interesting, because one of the main features of the temples that, that had been built before then was what? I don't know if you know the, the, the instructions that are given, but the main feature of glory in these temples are instruments made of gold. Yet in this millennial temple, it's not described. And yet I find in Revelation an encouragement to the bride to go, I counsel you to buy of me gold. Do you know that I actually think that her very presence becomes the gold? Isn't that neat? So we try and Precious metals, gold rings, all these kinds of things. But I really like his version when we get it. God's actually got a version a bit better than mine. Religion, Rome, pagan. That's the one. Let's look at what he's expressing to us, eh? 
because it's beautiful. It's actually beautiful. And I'm just starting, instead of trying to defend paganism or attack it or this or that, I, mean, I just actually want to look at how he's viewing this. And I'm actually starting to find we have a pretty cool God here. Pretty cool. We should be excited. Awesome. Counsel you to think very carefully before you decided to take the ring off your finger and melt it. <laughs> and catch you it in, you right? can make a golden calf. Get them all together. Throw them in the middle. <laughs> I'm just just one question. What you to clarify something that you um, spoke about this, this morning? You said no one knows the day of the hour which rests on the, the sliver of the moon. Can, can you just speak to that? Yeah, yeah. Um, Explain that a bit. The uh, watchmen on the wall are looking for um, the very, very first sliver of the moon. Now, even when this occurs, um, the reason for it is to blow the shofar, which gives the starting of the Feast of Trumpets. When they hear the shofar throughout the land, that's it. Things down, we're all coming together. It's actually quite a celebration. Now, what they're looking for is specifically this crescent of this moon that is at its faintest point to try and see it. Now, most people, unless you're being very diligent as a watchman, you're not going to know. You're not going to see it. We generally see a crest of the moon when, when it's pretty obvious, right? They're looking at just the tiny, and they're saying, we're on. The blowing of the shofar comes. And if you don't see it by the second day, could be weather-related, could be that, you know, you're still missing it because you're poor watchman, whatever, um, it'll start. And so this is why it's occurring over two days. So no man will know the day nor the hour when it's actually spotted or what day that it's on. And that's why I was trying to use the example. We're all familiar with the celebration we do engage in called Christmas, right? So if I speak to you in, in a cultural term, in a context today, and say to you, I will meet you, or I'm going to blow my trumpet on the day you open the presents underneath the tree, there is no dispute of what that is, is there? And, and when this was being asked of him, they were asking, when are you coming back? The direct question from the disciples. So go ahead and read beforehand. This is regarding him coming. So this is, and his answer is one of the appointed times. Sobering. So when you look yourself, you'll start seeing, it, but if you don't know them, remember there's an adversary that's going to try and take this away from you. If you don't even know them, are you ever going to read scripture that way? So you can have a good English accurate translation, but my context or my lens can still miss it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so that's when I talk about a Hebrew lens. When I talk about that sometimes the, the English gives us challenges. We like look at the word seasons, for instance. So in the King James, which I happen to like as an English translation, but this thing almost gets put up into idolatry. It translates the, uh, Moedim as seasons. Now, is that incorrect? No, not really. It's a fair enough translation. 
But what do seasons mean to us 2,000 years later? Or more than, sorry, the King James would be, what, 400 years later? But what does this mean thousands of years later? When I see the word seasons from a Western mindset, what does that mean? Summer, fall, spring, doesn't it? But what if it was saying appointed times? Is that similar? bit different, isn't it? You see, the translation can be good, but thy context can still miss it. That's the point. Because people say, oh, you mean I can't rely on my English Bible? God can't speak to me through it? Yes, he can. In fact, God demonstrates in Scripture he can speak through a donkey. I'd suggest to you he does it 2,000 years later, certainly with me. You know, if, if I utter an ounce of his truth, at any point, he has spoken through a donkey. Do you think he can take his word in whatever language and whatever is happening? Yes. But he did choose to have it recorded in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Greek and the Hebrew, alphanumeric languages, very descriptive. Now, he chose to do that for a reason. Why? Because I know my God is precise. Is at least a reference point, an anchor, because he knew that there would be something in play. And it helps me. But do I go and try and be a Hebrew scholar or a Greek scholar? Or do I try and inflict on everybody and all that? No. I'm just saying when you're led to go deeper in understanding a matter, it's okay to go and look at the benchmarks he put in play. It's okay because you've got a stake in the ground that at least you can try and contend for truth around it while you're washing in his word if you're led. Okay? So we're not attacking God's ability to speak through his English language to us. And just saying it has challenges in context from a Western perspective 2,000 years later. That's all. Does that make sense? Touching on this subject, I felt you said this morning the opposite to what I've been taught for 40 years. That, um, no, it, it, you know, people say no one knows the time and, and Jesus will come like a thief in the night. But what you said, that the bride will actually know that the bridegroom is coming. Did I get, understand that right? That's a good question. Is that the question? Yes. Right. It's a good question. Okay, there, so to put this in context, are you saying we can know the day or the hour? Well, the very feast itself says you can't know the day and the hour. Okay, so just quickly on that one. No, we can't know the day and the hour. However, it doesn't matter what I say, right? It matters what Scripture says. And what Scripture is saying, and this is why I get people to keep reading, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that this day would overtake you as a thief, because they have been celebrating their whole lives and honoring something called the appointed times. He's actually speaking to them in their context. So it doesn't matter what I say. So what the, the answer to this is, is that this is when it's happening, but to you, I don't need to speak about this, because you're very well aware of it. It's not going to overtake you as a thief, because you're You know these things. You've been practicing them your whole life. When you read this, it just lays out. Go back and read scripture. It won't matter what I say. Here's where it gets interesting. (laughs) This is where it gets really interesting. You can't know, and we'll speak a little bit about this next week, 
But do you know there's only one thing that starts the clock on the Great Tribulation? Does anybody know what that is? The abomination of desolation. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that next week. It actually starts something. And we're told there's 1,260 days. So here's, here's the kicker. Here's where my question comes. Or sorry, my answer will come. When the great tribulation starts, I can count down to the Feast of Trumpets. Do I know which day on the Feast of Trumpets an hour? No. But I know when the clock starts. He's told me literally in his word. But do you know I can't know that until the great tribulation itself starts? Do you know if we had done it his way and knew how to view this, you would not have in the body of Christ one false start on the coming of Christ? Not one. Because if you get this, you can't even entertain that concept until you're experiencing the great tribulation. Guess what's not going to happen in the business, in the body? We're not going to misrepresent him and create so many false starts, false truths, all these things that people have shut down to such a degree, they don't even want to know when somebody says, guess what? Jesus is showing up on such and such day. Do you know how many times? It's not Rome telling us the next date that Jesus is going to show up. Where's it coming from? Inside the house. So we just look at the fruit of these things, hundreds of false starts, not associated to the very thing we're supposed to look at. And I've got scripture that tells me you will know these things, my truth, you will understand them, the truth and them who deliver it by their fruits. What is the fruit of what we've been seeing trying to do it our own way? I don't want to participate in that anymore. I believe if we go and we look at it, we don't have to play games. We don't have to sit there and, and try and shift it and then create our ministries or our scary videos or this or that or whatever else is going on. We just need to represent it the way he's asked us to, to go ahead, know that we have somebody in control, a groom's on his way, and if, if some of us in this room actually experience this time, guess what? Comfort one another with these words. There'll be a countdown to the coming of a groom. And you're going to absolutely know it. And, and instead of you being scared about what Antichrist is doing on the earth or whatever's unfolding, guess what's going to be a little bit more sobering than that? You're going to know you're about to stand in front of who? Are you more scared of Antichrist than the one who will judge the heart? Don't fear the one who can destroy the what? The body? You see, let's get this in the right context. The only thing that I'm actually have reverence of anymore is I'm going to stand in front of him. And that's a sobering thought. So anti-Messiah, and we'll talk about this next week, take your best shot. But this moment that's coming that I know is not only my hope and my comfort, but that's the one that brings reverence to me. Not you and whatever it is you're doing as an adversary. Have a groom coming. Does uh, that answer your question, Keith? Good question. Okay, we're going to have to pull it there, I'm afraid.